the ability to forgive yourself is again, it's a skill. It's hard. And having standards is important. We need to care about what we're doing and how we're approaching it. But at the same time, like that moment of forgiveness that we're so quick to grant to our teammates needs to needs to be very present after we fail because we know we're going to fail. And, you know, again, so my question to, to club coaches are, are you talking to your players about that? Are you talking to them about forgiveness and utilizing information and then being ready for the next moment? Or are we just lighting them up when a ground ball goes through their legs with runners on base? Hey, I'm Ashley Agle. Some of you might know me as Ashley Burkhart, and I'm a former D1 and professional softball player who spent a few years coaching in the college game before deciding to put all of my focus into youth softball players and helping them make their dreams and their goals happen for them. It's our job to help them unleash their potential and become the athletes they've always dreamt of. I come from a small city in the Midwest and didn't let that stop me from making my goal of playing D1 softball a reality. No matter where you live, you have the tools to help you thrive, and I am hoping through this podcast to help you get there. On this podcast, you'll learn from Olympians, Hall of Fame coaches, and elite players what their journeys have been like, and you'll also learn from me and my family a bit of our journey through the game. I'm so excited to have you here, so whip out your notebook and let's learn how we can grow in this game together. Welcome to When the Cleats Come Off. Another day, another podcast interview. Welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you here as always. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We're going to have a blast on this show, especially this interview with my good friend, Nicole Trimboli. If you've never heard her name before, you're about to fall in love. So what I mean by that is Nicole is one of the most genuine and humble and smart coaches in the game. I was honored to meet her over five years ago working a softball clinic. We've gotten to work together and see each other many times at NFCA last year, and we've definitely vowed to see each other more after meeting for this interview. But Nicole Trimboli, let me tell you a little bit about her. She is a three-time All-Big 12 honoree from the University of Nebraska. She played after college nine years in the NPF. So crazy enough, when she retired was when I actually joined the NPF. She was an all-star there, and she also won a few NPF championships, and she was honored the MVP in 2008. She spent 12 years coaching in college before deciding to start her own training business in Colorado. She started NT Athletic Development, NT, Nicole Trimboli, where she hosts her lessons, clinics, team trainings, recruiting workshops, which are massive, especially from spending 12 years coaching in the college game, and so much more. In this episode, we go over many topics, some being how coaches can build communication with their players and help get more out of them, resources to become a mentally tougher athlete, how to take practices into games, which is a massive question I get asked all the time, recruiting, how to stand out as a player. She talks about drills to increase hitters' mindsets and how parents can help their athletes grow at a faster rate. And of course, we talk about so much more. I love Nicole, and I have a really good feeling you're going to love her too after this episode. And like any episodes, if you enjoy it, I would love if you shared it 
with a friend of yours as well. All right, let's welcome Nicole to the show. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of When the Cleats Come Off. Nicole Trimboli is in the house, and I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Can we try and date back to when we first met? (laughs) It's so hard. (laughs) Like, my first flash is here, but we met before that. Yeah, did we do, like, a coach's clinic together or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we met with Package Deal? Yep. Okay. Time's And so wait, I'm 40 now. How old are you? I turned 30 in January. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. there's that whole decade thing in between because I was on my way out of the pro league and you were coming into the pro league, which is pretty cool. I know. That is wild. So, okay. Talk about pro league real quick. You played nine years. That experience for you, my experience is, I think everybody's experience is all different. But would you agree that to play in the professional softball world back when you and I did, it's probably even different when you started, you had to really love the game of softball to be in this league. That was, yes. I mean, my short answer is yes, you did. And that was honestly one of the first places that I, I, I ran across players that didn't feel the same way about it. I actually had one of my teammates literally say to me, like, you know, Nicole, not everybody feels the same way about the game that you do. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, really, how, how could you make it here? And, and to be honest, the, the people that didn't, didn't last long. Yeah. Um, there was a high turnover rate. Like every year I kind of told people, it's like 60% of the rookies you saw playing in the world series and killing it and make it to the pro league. Like they don't make it a second year. It's so, it's so hard. It's so yeah. hard to play at that level, but I loved it. I really loved it. Yeah. And, and I will say I was one of those turnovers. Like I had a two year deal and I was out after the two, um, obviously for my own circumstances, like I was released from my team. And if I wanted to go join another team, I could have, but I was at the point of like, I need to figure out what's next. Like my love for the game is kind of washing away. And it's sad because like, obviously as a rookie, I was so excited for this experience. Um, and we don't have to go too deep into NPF life, but it doesn't (laughs) exist anymore, which is wild. But, you know, there are now other professional outlet outlets that are doing, you know, crushing the game. So I just love that yeah. the NPF is what kind of led to this new era of pro ball. So, but you did have to love it. I mean, you don't get paid a whole lot and athletes still don't get paid a whole lot. And that was like the whole point. It's like, how, so how did you make a living outside of the pro game deals or you were coaching in college, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, so I got drafted in 2004 played my first year. I loved it. And then I finished up my fifth year of college and it was the same moment of like, what am I supposed to do now? And yeah. so I, I, I honestly fell into coaching. I had a good friend of mine, uh, Kristen Johnson was coaching at the university of Maine, which I don't know if you guys understand how North Maine is. Cause I didn't, mm-hmm. um, it's so Canada cold. basically. <laughs> yeah. So, so she's like, you're not doing anything. We need help. Come up here. So I came in January right before traditional NCAA season started and and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. We had seven seniors on the team. They were so much fun to work with. One of them was older than me because she had two medical red shirts. So she was like a couple months older than me and that was my first experience. And so I figured out really quick, like I'm going to work the rest of my life and I don't, I want to be in charge of when my career is over. And so yeah. I coached and a couple of times I came across a head coach that said it would be okay for me to play. And then when time came, it wasn't okay. And, and I left the job because of that. It's like, I got the rest of my life to, to 
to give back and coach. And I'm only going to have a very small window to play. And you ended up coaching. Did you coach in college longer than you played? <clears throat> I, I, I'm curious yes. about that turnover. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So my first head job, um, I grew up in Colorado. So I wanted, you know, you, you don't know how much you love it here until you leave it. Yeah. And then I was like, I like that. <laughs> so I really wanted to get back here. And, um, a head job at a division two school opened up at Regis. Um, I was sloppy seconds. They interviewed three people and they didn't like any of them. So then I got the call and, and on my interview, i had actually, I had a broken leg. I broke my leg one of the years playing in the pro league and the AD asked like, well, you know, are you done playing? And I said, honestly, like, I don't want to be, but for this job I would. Mm. And she was awesome. She was like, no, I think we can work both. And so I played two more years and then I retired and I kept coaching for a few more. Wow. Shout out to yeah. that AD that allowed you to do that because no. you don't Martin. see that. Thanks, Ann. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. You know, shout out to every, you know, player that's still playing pro and like working at a college. It takes a lot yeah. of give and take for programs to do that in schools, oh, yeah. um, especially because like recruiting season was NPF season. So <laughs> that's got to be I'm just so going to take wild. off for three months. Is that cool? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. That's so cool, though. So you're not in college anymore. You're not working. <laughs> you, you might be working consultant deals in college, but mm-hmm. you're not working the full-time job of a college coach anymore. I'm curious what made you venture off and create your own company. Well, it's funny. I feel like there's more and more of us that are doing that for better or for worse, right? There's there's a plus and minus. Um, you know, I loved my time at Regis. It was a very peaceful parting and we knew we were going to leave. So, you know, we wanted to get some things done our last year there. Like they didn't have a, a locker room. And so we made sure to, to leave that program was, you know, better than we found it. But both me and my assistant, we were ready for something more, but we didn't want to move our lives. Like she wanted to go back to school. Um, she's actually about to finish up her uh, PhD right now in physical therapy. And I wanted to still coach, but not in the same capacity. And, and really like, it doesn't matter what level you're at. And I know, you know, we chatted about it. It, it takes over your life. And some of it is, you know, the beautiful part about coaching is you get to know these kids on, on such a deep level. If you're to me, if you're doing it right, and, you know, you're going to their weddings, you're, you're seeing their new babies after you've coached them for four years. And I actually remember I emailed Sue Inquist and I said, so, you know, I'm really scared about not being in that world. Like, what was it like? What was that transition like? And, you know, she said two things that, that were, you know, it's Sue. So she's awesome. Mm-hmm. She said, the relationships don't go away and you'll continue to build those. And it might look a little different but those aren't going to go away if you build them right and you feed them. The other thing she said was you're going to be around the average a lot more. And that was a huge adjustment. Yeah. And you know, do you know what I mean by that? Totally know exactly what you mean. Yep. People who settle. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I didn't get, it. I was like, okay, that's fine. And sure enough, it was like, man, we've been just surrounded by extraordinary people, mm-hmm. right? It takes something extraordinary to, not just talent, but just commitment really and grit and resilience and problem solving and collaboration. And that's all we're surrounded by when you're, you know, you're playing team sport at a high level and yep. man, that, that one I saw really fast. I saw that really fast. The average. Yeah. 
That's that's so crazy and unique. So when you decided to make that move, what did it look like at the beginning? I'm curious about this simply because I kind of made a similar move. Like I was done with pro ball, didn't know what to do. And I just started giving lessons. Like that's where it started for me. And then mm-hmm. I started realizing like, hey, I live in the Midwest. A lot of people in the Midwest don't think we can be as good as those people out in California and Florida and Texas. And yeah. no, you can reach your dreams even if you're over here. So that's where like online training started for me. And, you know, this podcast came out of it. I don't know if the experience is any similar for you, but what did it look like at the beginning? At the beginning stages of your amazing training business that we'll talk about here in a bit. I mean, part of the reason I left that I didn't mention was I wanted to start a different business. So I actually started two businesses at once. Um, I'm one for two. One (laughs) failed, one succeeded, and it had nothing to do with softball. So that was really interesting to be in just a totally different world outside of sports. But um, the softball one, I would have people reach out and say like, hey, will you come work with my team? And again, when you're a college coach and especially when you're the head coach, like you don't have a lot of time, but I was like, well, this is really fun. Cause I never, I never really loved giving a one-on-one lesson. I did, you know, parents are, are married to the idea that that one-on-one is like, that's the bee's knees, but I didn't really like doing them. Like kids don't have as much time to process. They, I want them to have somebody in the cage to compete with next to them. So I first was like, okay, what I'm going to sell is team training business. So I come in, I'll work with your team. I talk with the coach, like, what do you want to focus on? Usually two hour blocks and it would cost 20 bucks a kid. And so now, you know, it was tough for me, like private lessons are, they're expensive and people mm-hmm. pay it and and they should, we're, we're experts in our field. But now all of a sudden with that team model, I was able to open that up like to any demographic, any family. It's like, oh, it's 20 bucks. Okay. And, and now I got to reach a lot more people in a small amount of time. And that's just, it's really just grown over the last three years. So, I mean, that's, that's my bread and butter. Um, and yeah, I work with college teams. I work with 10 new teams every once in a while. Um, and it's been really fun. And I do small group lessons still, but it's four people. It's not a one-on-one. I'm so glad Sue, who has been on the podcast before, her interview yeah. was insanely cool. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much from her. I'm going to try to get her back on. But I loved how she talked about those relationships because I have a feeling like when you're working in the college game, like now you're consulting for college teams, I'm sure a lot of them, it's like through the grapevine, the connections that started in NPF now flourishing to this yeah. this new gig that you have. Is that kind of like how it surfaced for you? How you've dove into the college game a little more too? I mean, yes and no. I would say that replies a lot more to the recruiting aspect of it. Like yeah. our network is rich and 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 big. Be honestly, I attribute a lot of that to Pro Ball. And I, you know, I played forever. And everybody's like, when are you gonna be done? I was like, wow, I can't come back when I'm 50. <laughs> um, but I'm 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 totally at the age now where our friends slash opponents and teammates are you know, that were stayed in that world, they're, they're at the big jobs. They've worked their way through the ranks. And so that network is, is there for the recruiting piece of it when I'm working with families and kids and and being able to, to make that call. And my rule is always, I'm on the back end. I'm never going to call a friend and sell a kid. It's the kid's job to start that relationship. And if that coach is interested, I will jump in and tell that coach what I know about that kid. But um, mm-hmm. as far as working with colleges, a lot of it's local. It's it's Colorado schools that have an idea of what I'm doing. I've done a couple consults and you know via Zoom. Thank you, Zoom. Whether it's like mental game workshops or team culture, things like that, which has been, I love that stuff because I know how 
impactful it is. Totally. Yeah, same. Were you introduced to that when you were at Nebraska? Like all the yes. mental training and stuff? Yeah. yeah. That was the same for me at Purdue. And now I'm like all in. I'm like, give me that mental game oh, book. Yeah. I want to read it. <laughs> I I know. And like, I we got to work with Ken Revisa, which was, I mean, I was definitely a player. It's like, I don't need that. I'm ready. Like, you know, for better, for worse, like I was ready for a fight. I was always ready for a fight and I, and I was a competitive player always, but I never gave a lot of attention to that side of it until I was forced to. And then once I actually like conceded and started to listen, it was like, whoa, it just opened up a whole nother level of what I was able to do. And, and more importantly, like how to control myself better and be bigger in, in big situations. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, Ken, Ken was amazing. Like, I mean, to be exposed to him in person was like, oh, I get it. So like, that's the, that's the first book and it's still the book I recommend. It's like, read Heads Up Baseball. Yep, yep. Read Heads Up Baseball. It's so simple and applicable to this day. That's so cool that you met him because I had to read the book in college. Like we had summer readings that we did. Mm -hmm. And I say had to because like who wants to be on their summer vacation and like have to read if you don't like reading? Still refer back to that book to this day. It is so yeah. good. Okay, so competitive Nicole. Can we talk about her? Because she played baseball until <laughs> she was 13. And I want to dive into that. I feel like that has a lot to do with your competitive drive. Look at you digging and doing the homework. <laughs> um, good job. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love this story of when I actually switched to softball. So, like, I didn't even know there was fast pitch. All I played was baseball. And actually, like, I didn't know this happened. My dad told me later, we moved to upstate New York for a few years and he went down to sign me up. I'm like seven or eight years old. And they told him like, no, we have softball for girls. And he said, no, my daughter plays baseball. And my parents are not sports people at all, like in any way, shape or form, but he knew I liked it. And so he, they were like, nope, we have softball. So he had to like go down to the city, like the town meeting and fight for me to play little league baseball. And they let me, which was great. But, you know, I'm 13 and I was a pitcher. I played pitcher first base. I was left-handed. And, and a guy approached my dad at my baseball game and said, you know, I would, I would love to have your daughter out of practice for softball. And so, like, it was absolutely kicking and screaming that he's taking me there. I'm like, this is stupid. I don't know why we're doing this. Because in my head, I'm thinking it's slow pitch, right? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't okay. want to play that. I mm -hmm. have no idea. And I remember rolling up, walking up with my dad. And the coach, that's the 14U coach, is finishing up his men's fast pitch game. And he's pitching. His name's Dervin Taylor. And I'm watching this. And men's fast pitch is no joke. It used to oh, be yeah. really big here in Colorado. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? So, you know, then we practice. And it was like, I just fell in love with it. I loved how fast the game was. But I do attribute so much of just the fight and kind of the blinders that help. I, mm -hmm. I stopped worrying about what people thought a long time ago because every single time I'd have to, you know, start with a new baseball team. Like they didn't want me there and you, I could feel it, but it was like, I loved the game so much that that always was enough to like, oh, I just want to play hard. And it was enough. And so I look back now and I'm so thankful that I played baseball as long as I did. And I think it was a huge part of having to prove myself that I could play. And then they'd be like, all right, you're good. And then the boys were awesome to me. Yeah, that's good. I grew up in a neighborhood where I ended up playing baseball first when I was seven. Mm -hmm. And they were all with my neighbor boys, boyfriends. No, yeah. They were just boys. <laughs> um, and they were actually jerks. Like, all together. Really? Like, But it was kind of the same thing. Like, I had to prove myself. And every mm -hmm. time I'd fall on my face, I'm like, well, I'm going to get up and I'm going to prove them that I can do this. But I feel like that mental edge 
that's when it kind of started for me. So is that like one of the big lessons that baseball taught you was like, keep showing up and not like trying to prove people wrong, but proving yourself right in a way? Yeah. I mean, it, it wraps up into, I think, two things, and it kind of takes us into the coaching element too. What what I notice now when I look back is I wasn't treated like a boy and I wasn't treated like a girl. I was treated like an athlete. Yeah. And so many times I will go to uh, a younger you know, softball team's practice, 10U or 12U. And most of the time, like, I mean, I'm going to go upwards of 90% of softball coaches are males. And mm-hmm. most of them don't want to make little girls cry, but it's to the point where like, they're not pushing them and coaching them and teaching them the game where in baseball, like they're pushing those guys and they're demanding focus and they're demanding understanding of the game and, and raising that game IQ instead of like, Oh, well they're 14. You now let's, let's work on double plays. Like whether we're coaching boys or girls, cause there's, I always have a coach tell me like, Oh, go, girls and boys are different to coach. Like, I know too much now and I've heard too much from young men in college to know like they care just as much about what their coaches think about them that girls do. They just don't say it. Mm -hmm. They don't. And so that transition for me was, was easy because my, my first 14 U softball coaches, like they taught us the game and, and they weren't yelling or like screaming at us, but they had, they had a standard and that transition, and again, I was lucky, like we didn't know these guys that were like, come play softball. I had already been taught so much on the baseball side that it didn't feel like I was catching up. Other than they make you stay, stand way closer at first base than in baseball. That was like, no, that's, <laughs> I didn't get it's it. too close, bro. Yeah. Close. What are we doing? Yeah. No, I, I'm perfect segue, by the way. Like, it's almost like you knew where I was going here. You know, I was just listening to an interview with Patty Gasso and Leah Amico. Um, Leah Amico mm-hmm. has a new podcast, Gold Standard. It's really good. But it's so funny that you say that, like, this is what how men and, like, the successful male coaches in baseball, like, this is how they train their kids. And I'm, like, literally demanding a high standard and discipline. Like, that is what Patty Gasso's, like, middle name is. Like, she was asked what the secret was to success. And she's just like, well, first of all, we have to get the right kids that work with our system. Yeah. But, like, she's like, we work hard. Like, we work so hard. Like, people are like, what's the secret sauce? Uh, Working hard and not complaining and putting the team first. And I feel like, you know, I was lucky. My dad was one of, like, the great male coaches in my life who, you know, demanded this sort of excellence from everyone on the team and slyly myself a little bit more on the side just because I had big goals. But I think that's like a misconception. Like people are like, no male should be should be coaching softball. And I'm like, look at Mike Andrea. Like, look what he did to the yeah. game. And obviously we have Patty Gasso. We have a Sue Inquist. We have, I mean, just so many names. It's, it's just insane. Like Carol mm-hmm. Hutchins just retired. Like we have these demanding coaches in females. But what's crazy is, you know, Males can do the same, but I think males just need to figure out what that empathy piece is and know when the boundaries can be pushed. That's as far as like I've kind of learned. Yeah, it's like they falter on one side or the other. It's, it seems to be extreme often. And with that said, all of them, no, but a lot of them. Because I've had some amazing, I had, they didn't never had a female coach until I got to college. Yeah, Rhonda um, was a, and Rhonda's the best. I know, they're awesome. They're still there. Yeah. Um, for a reason, they, they should still be there. And so that, that moment of, you know, do I ask for more or do I soften up? It's to me, first and foremost, you have to lay a really good foundation with your kids. It can't just be all about softball. 
all the time. Um, and there's such easy ways to do that because when you build a level of trust and I see you as more than a, than a person or sorry, more than an athlete, I see you as a person too, then they're going to let you push them more. Mm-hmm. But if it's just about their performance all the time, and that's the only thing you ever address when you get on them or when you tell them that what you're doing is not good enough, here's what I need you to do. They're way less receptive to that. And so show up early to practice. Talk to the kid that's the worst one on the team for five minutes about her day. Because then when you get into practice and then you're riding her about something, it's like, oh, wait, that's right. Like he's a person or she's a person too. And so a lot of that, I think, is just bookending on beginning and ends of practice. Like have conversations with your kids that have nothing to do with softball. Yeah. This established the fact that you see them as human beings first and athletes second. And then when you go after them as an athlete or you stop a, a drill or whatever and say, like, we're starting over because I know you guys are better than this. Here's what we need to do. Let's try again. They're going to accept that so much more than, you know, you're you're kind of cold with them. You don't interact with them. You don't engage. And I don't know. I I, I think I'm a very much a product of Rhonda and Sipple because they were relationship first, coaches second. And I'm proud of that. I have zero. There, I, There's nothing else I'd rather be. Yeah. And you do such a phenomenal job of it. You're one of the kindest people I know. I mean, we literally got on this call and the first per- thing you asked, like, how are you feeling? Like, I think like... That is this sort of, and that's the same as Carol Hutchins. Like my sister played for her this past year and, you know, everybody thinks she's this hard-nosed coach and like you actually get to know her and she's she's that when she needs to be that. But truly yeah. she cares about her players and who they are as humans before anything. And a lot of coaches come up to me asking, how can I be more connected with my players? And the first thing is treat them as humans. Like share a little bit of your life with them. They'll share theirs. Like I think that's huge. Yeah. That piece you just said, and I don't feel like coaches do that enough. They want to know you as well. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you got to tell them your life story. Like you're working with 12 year olds or 18 year olds. But if they ask, how are you? It's like, oh, you know, remind them like, oh, good. I had a tough day at work. You know, we had this big client kind of like, they may not know what any of that means, but there's that moment of like, Oh, you have feelings too? Like, yep, sure do. And we have stuff going on. And yeah, it's all of that. It's all of that. Um, It's being transparent, transparent with boundaries, really. I know. And it's so crazy because you think about, you know, I had a coach in college who she never shared anything with us and everything was a job. Like, and it was miserable. I thought about quitting after my sophomore year of college. She was fired though (laughs) at Nebraska. (laughs) Um, She told, well, she told us at the end of the Big Ten tournament at Nebraska, but you know, the entire 360, because I've seen great coaches who have empathy and like share a little bit about their experience. It's like when you do that, like you said, you tend to show up more yourself because you're not feeling like you have to be guarded because your coach is acting guarded and doesn't want to know anything about you. And, and frankly, you're not allowed to know anything about them, but it almost makes you play more free when you have a coach who, you know, does care about you and does want to know when things are going on. We're in a mental health crisis right now. Athletes are really struggling with their mental health. They need people Mm -hmm. and mentors in their life that truly do care if they're having a bad day and where it happened. Like, then obviously like we're not therapists, but have you, have you ever been told by a kid that like, you're like my therapist? Cause I've been told that. And I'm like, oh, I'm not a licensed therapist. 
But I think there's a listening aspect that I think coaches need to have a little bit more of. Yeah. Well, and you brought up part of the the struggle of being an NCAA coach is you are expected. You're, it's not just like, oh, that's a nice thought. Like you are expected to be great at the therapy, the coaching, the discipline. It's like a laundry list of things that that's the expectation. And man, if I could go back and I knew I was going to be a coach, like I would have 100% gotten my degree in like educational psychology. Yeah. But it's, it is, it's, it's all encompassing. And even if you just allow your team to say like, Hey, here's, here's what I want from you guys. I expect everything you've got for two hours. But if you know you're coming into practice and it's just been, it's been one of those days, whether it's with your family, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a friend, whatever it is, all I need you to do is come up to me and say like, Hey coach, I'm, I'm having a tough day. And even, even them verbalizing that you just watch them go and all you have to do, you don't have to dive into this and be a professional psychology and say like, okay, thanks for letting me know. And it's enough. It's enough to know. It doesn't mean you drop your standards that day and you let them do whatever they want. The other thing I would always tell players is even on a tough day like that, use this two hours, escape whatever's going on because that problem is going to be the right when we're done. And so give yourself a two hour break to be all in with you today, but thanks Mm. for telling me. And so now it's obviously like I will be more cognizant if there's, you know, something happens at practice that, you know, a player was unfocused in a moment or out of position because she spent five seconds telling me like, Hey coach, it's been, you know, I've had one of those days, you know, do you want to tell me what's going on? No. Okay. Just thanks for putting it on my radar. Mm-hmm. How long does that take for us to do? Yeah. To, that's, to relieve them of that. That's so special. And I'm referring back to this interview again real quick, but Patty Gasso said, well, the, with the amount of like psychology work that, you know, people who are licensed at these schools are giving, she goes, you know, whenever an athlete asks me for a mental health day, they get it. Because obviously they're going through something and she's not acting like the professional here. Like, no, just rub it off. Go do it. Go go to practice no matter how you're feeling. You know, she even allows her athletes to have a mental day or two, like to just reset. And she goes, every time I've done that, the athlete has come back recharged and excited to get back to work. Isn't that wild? It is, but it's also like, what what other way is there, especially right now? Like, it is... It is it, we're in crisis. I don't know another word to use for it. And, you know, for a multitude of reasons, I don't know if we can articulate what really happened to, to young people during COVID to feel that disconnected. And then add on the stress of playing a college sport. Like it's hard. It's, it's hard from a million different directions. And, and I, I think every time I, you know, I'll say like, Hey, playing college sports, it's hard. It's not for everybody. I don't just mean like people are good at softball on the field. It's every single kid that what they're going to face never being there before is stressful. Mm-hmm. And, and to think that they're going to be perfect at it and not need a TV timeout is, is kind of absurd to be honest. And so, you know, I, when I was coaching college, you know, in the fall, I'd always tell my kids, especially my out of state kids, it's like, if you, if things are mounting and you need to go home, I'd rather lose you for three days than for the next four years. Yeah. If I need to stick you on the plane in the middle of the season to just go home because it's that much. And I never had a kid do that, but I think them understanding like there's, there's room for imperfection and there should be, um, there's room for being a human and having to deal with some things off the field, but just communicate. I mean, that's a tough thing right now with kids is 
getting them to come and talk to you, right? They'd rather just text you like, Hey, I'm having a tough day like that. I want to connect with them. And so getting them to be face to face and address what's going on is sometimes difficult, but it still needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned room for imperfection and you're a hitting coach. I'm a hitting coach. How often is the cage like the ultimate room for imperfection? You know, I, the last couple of years, I, I definitely think I've evolved more and more and I'm, and I'm narrating it. I'm telling our kids, like, you should be failing with me. If all mm-hmm. I'm doing is throwing you feel good front toss every day, like I'm painting you a very, a very bad picture of what's going to actually happen on the field. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not accurate. And so even just narrating things more when I'm pushing them helps them like, Hey, this drill's going to be hard. We're probably going to fail at it more than you succeed. It's okay. And it's like that you watch them go, all right. And I could do the same exact drill, but not say a word and they crumble in two or three swings when they don't get it. And so challenging athletes, you know, if you're looking to transition, you know, that cage time, that practice time on the field, then we've got to do a lot better job of, of putting them in pressure situations. Like I kind of view, you know, stress and pressure, they, they work together. And so if I can create more, more pressure and practice, that stress level is going to come down on game day because Mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of the emotional mistakes they make is, is not the pressure of the external situation. It's the stress they, they feel from it. And so, I mean, I, I always tell kids like hitting so much fun. I say, it's really hard, but it's so much fun. I love how hard it is. And the more we normalize that and get them used to, it's like, it's okay. Like, I mean, it's amazing to watch a kid get so mad after eight swings. And it's like, how long have you been doing this? About a minute. Why would you be perfect at this yet? And then by minute five, they're getting it. It's like, we got to be patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about this. So hitting slumps are the ultimate test of patience, right? Do you believe in the term hitting slump? Because some people do not. Do I believe in the term? Um, I think there's ebbs and flows, but a lot of the time, you know, if I'm, if I'm in an ebb during a season, it's almost always self-inflicted. Totally. Right. Like it's, the game stays the same. Some people are a little bit better at putting it in that little box. I got to pitch it into, but the game's exactly the same. How I'm approaching it, something must be off. And so the focus has to go back to what, what did I change? What am I doing different? How do I get back to that flow part again, that flow state? So for you, when you were in that ebb, how did you get yourself out of it? Man, I got to think back. It's been a long time. I know. So some of my athletes, I've, I'm teaching them a little bit of journaling. Like, hey, if it's a crappy day, write about it. Like, how did you get here? I think trying to find like the core, like where did it start is huge mm-hmm. for at least what I'm teaching now. And if I go back to when I was struggling, again, completely self-inflicted. I don't. I wasn't super into journaling, but I would try to like let go. So I'd try to find a teammate and be like, hey, give me something to focus on because I am so in my head right now that I can't even breathe. And I have the scenario, I think I've said it before on the podcast, but (laughs) there was an athlete. She was one of our bullpen catchers. Her nickname was Mega. She's the best. Um, I was like, Mega. (laughs) awesome nickname. I know. Megatron is like her longer nickname. But I was like, Mega, give me like just a random word to think about. I'm just going to like go up to the plate Mm -hmm. with a random word. And she goes, kumquat. Like, first of all, I don't even Nailed know it. what a kumquat is. Um, I had to look it up afterwards. But I was like, okay. And I literally said out loud in the box, kumquat, kumquat, kumquat. And I hit like this line drive to center. And I was like, I'm back. And I feel like it just took 
putting my focus onto something other than all of the negative XYZs going on in my brain to get out of it. And then mm-hmm. now I encourage my athletes, like, write that down. Like, that'll be like, instead of waiting four games before you figure this out, how about we figure out this out in one game or even one at bat? That's kind of like how I would describe my slumps and getting out of them. But yeah, I don't know. Did you have any other tactics you used? I mean, you brought up to me, like you brought up a lot of things that like, even last night I had a couple hitters that I finished my night with. And we talked about the four things, the four things that high level athletes do to control the mind. Right. Yeah. And so come quat, come quat. Like it didn't, it's not a negative. It's a word or a phrase. That's very simple. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the tactics is to have like, if I need my mind to be quiet, which I think, you know, I think we're still on the agreement of, you know, when we're hitting great and somebody goes, what are you thinking about? Nothing. Like that's our response. I don't know. And so we're always trying to find this quiet space with all the information that we have now. How do we process the information, but still get in the box and be quiet? And it's really hard. And so your, your teammate, Mega, awesome. Hey, Mega, um, <laughs> gave you kumquat, that one simple word. That's a big deal. And it gave you, and you said, it's like, so just one thing to focus on, right? And so simplifying the game again. And so when you ask, like, what what would I do when it got noisy? And that was usually the problem is this got noisy. I was thinking about my foot getting down or what she might throw. And all of a sudden it was like, I can't hit like that once both feet are in the box. I think that's such a sacred space. I just tried to drive it right. Like for practice, during practice, like just hit the screen. I had one focus. I have a small target. It's just drive the ball back to the screen. Because if I'm doing that, I'm staying through the ball a long time. I'm not picking apart my mechanics because, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, you're just looking for somebody to get a barrel on the ball. And sometimes it looks ugly, but if you can get a barrel on the ball, good things happen. But the breathing element is is huge. The focal point is huge. Something to look at. And so many hitters, they're already doing some of these things. They just don't quite know why yet. And so when you are more intentional with your breath, what is your focal point? A lot of them just kind of hold their bat and they look at it. And so explaining that and educating them on like, what does that do for your body and your mind? It slows your heart rate down. And if my heart rate slows down, usually my mind slows down too. But like that was always, it was when I got in those spots, it was tough for me. And I think what was really helpful going back to like, I was just always a fighter. I didn't care who was in the other dug. I'm like, who are we, kill- who are we beating today? I never, I, it was rare that I cared who was in the other dugout. Yeah. So a lot of those concepts like focal point, breath, heads up baseball. (laughs) It's in heads up baseball. I know. Don't reinvent Um, the wheel. I know. And those listening that are like, where can I find this? I'm putting it in the show notes after this episode. So like go to the show notes, click the link. That book is transformational. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Bible. I mean, not obviously to the holiness level, but like It's such a good tool to refer back to when you're going through something like you're hitting slump or you're a pitcher and you're trying to to figure out like how to have a stronger mental game, you know, just that fierce competitiveness. If you feel like you've lost it, like the answers are there. It's just wild and crazy. Another book I love is Mind Gym. I feel like a lot of those same concepts are in that book. Have you read that one? Yes. Yeah. A couple times. It's, it's, it's amazing to go back and read someone or something when you've gotten older. Yeah. <laughs> you, you interpret it differently. Better. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Quick question for you. Did you know that every single interview that we've had on the podcast, except for one interview, can be found on YouTube? 
Yes. So if you love a guest that we have on the show, you can go to my YouTube channel and type in the episode or the guest that was on the show, and you'll be able to find the full interview if you want to see a visual. And a lot of times in these episodes, we refer to visuals and things that you wish you could probably see the guest talking about. Well, if you actually go to YouTube, you will be able to see them all. So the way to get there is by going to youtube.com forward slash Ashley Burkhart training, and you'll be able to find every interview that we found in the show, but one. Also on that channel, I have tons of drills that I have shared with the community and some of those drills have gone viral. And frankly, I want to be adding more drills to that channel soon. So go ahead, subscribe to the channel and you will be the first to know when the next episode drops. Just a reminder, it's youtube.com forward slash Ashley Burkhart training. You can find it in the show notes too. All right, let's head back to the episode. So hitting wise right now as a coach, how do you put the strength of mental game work? And you talked about like adding failure to your practices. I love doing that too. At the end of every single lesson, I always end with some sort of, you know, really tough challenge. But how do you combine that, like the mental game, the mental toughness with obviously the physical part that you share drills all the time on your page. So obviously you care about the physical um, swing, but how do you incorporate both in your training? I mean, when we create failure in practice, we get to see our athletes handle that failure and whether they handle it good or not. And so for me, at very early on, especially if I have a new kid that's jumped in with a group, like we're going to do something that's tough. And, um, you know, just instead of just simply throwing kids front toss, it's very rare that I'll do that. It's like, okay, we're doing no pop, no pull. And there's a mm. couple kids in the cage. So if the kid pops it up, if they pull it, I'm not even, I don't have to do anything. They know they just get out. And so they could have two swings. They could have 10. We'll do, um, you stay to play. So as long as you're hitting line drives and we'll keep track of who hit the most line drives in a row before they grounded out or popped up. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're still throwing the same front toss, but all of a sudden there's, it's, there's something on the line. And so if we can make their swings matter in the cage, they're going to matter more outside the cage. Um, something as simple as, instead of letting them stand in there for 10, 15 swings, we do three swing switch sometimes, three swing switch. Mm. And I'll tell them like, with three swings, you're probably gonna either feel good about your round or bad about your round, but you're gonna have maybe 30 seconds to think about an adjustment if you need to make one, reset and get back in and attack me again, like an at bat. And so I'm trying to condition them to for what it feels like if I failed, but I got information from the failure what do I need to do with it? Or I did awesome. What was I doing? Well, oh, I, I made sure I got my hands back on time. Okay. Get back in and hit your next three balls when they fail. And this is a part where I think coaches don't understand our kids are learning how to deal with failure too. And it doesn't mean they're going to be perfect at it. They're going to cry. Sometimes they're going to shut down. They're going to stand in a corner away from their teammates during a practice. And so instead of just getting on them about it, you got to have conversation because they're, they're, they're growing those skills no different than a swing. Mm-hmm. And we've, I've had all of it. I've had all of that walk in the cage at 15, 16, 17, 20 years old. And to have that conversation of like, what's going on? Well, I'm just mad. Like I can see that, but is it helping you for the next moment? Well, no. Okay. 
So what happened? And I just try to get them back to like, okay, well, what, what happened in the failure? Let's get as unemotional about it as possible and start working through the list. All right, this happened. What do you need to do about it? Well, I need to keep my hands up. Okay, how are you going to do it? And that's the part that kids don't get to a lot. They'll tell you why they messed up. Mm-hmm. And then if you ask, all right, what, what, how would you have wanted to attack that pitch? Well, I should have done this. Okay, how are you going to do it? Oh, I need to make sure when I pull my hand back, it goes back and not down. Awesome. Let's go in the cage again. So, the you know, we're trying to get them to process versus have a big emotional reaction because we know they're going to fail hitting so hard. Yeah. And frankly, being a human is hard. And we are so mean to ourselves in general Ugh, that like yeah. it makes sense why our self-talk just goes to let's not cuss on this podcast, but you know what I'm about to say. I'm so proud of myself for not cussing so far. (laughs) And I almost cussed on my own podcast, but we are so mean to ourselves. But what's crazy is I was just about to ask you about self-talk. It sounds like the answer is remind yourself what you should be doing. And in the cage, when you're training, when you're going through these challenges, like keep repeating what works and keep repeating those phrases that work for you. And when you're going down this rabbit hole of just like, I suck, this is the worst challenge ever, I want to go home, like it literally compiles itself to get you into the hole. So what's self-talk? I don't know if you have like practices that you share with your athletes, but like, how do you address that when you know somebody's self-talk is just absolute bonkers? And I can see like when you can see it. Yeah. When I can see it, I'll I'll stop and I'll ask, I was like, how's your head right now? Like, what are you thinking about? And you, and then they know it's like step out, reset, or like go to the back of the line, let somebody else come back in, just reset yourself. Like it's okay to recognize the moment and then move them out because they're not going to perform anyways. And again, like just narrating that, like how successful are you going to be right now with your head where it's at? Not very, okay. Then get out of the box. You know, one of the most powerful things in terms of self-talk that was ever said to me was Sipple. Um, Lori Sipple at Nebraska, she's a pitching coach. And I think, I don't know if it was my sophomore or junior year, we were actually playing Michigan, I think, and they they beat us. And she goes, I want you to take a second. And Sipple is like a lady of few words, but when she talks, you're just like, oh my God, that was so good. <laughs> yeah. We all around us. Yeah. 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 So she, it was, it was, and I needed to hear it for sure. She goes, I want you to take a minute and I want you to, you know, think about after a mistake, you know, whether it's a strikeout or you booted a ground ball or whatever it is, I want you to think about how you talk to yourselves. And she literally paused and she just stared at us and it's like, okay, so she's for real. Okay. Think about this. And then she asked such a simple question that I'll never forget. And I share it with every team I work with. She goes, would you ever talk to a teammate after they failed the way that you talk to yourself? Mm. And it was just like that moment of like, there's no way. And so the ability to forgive yourself is again, it's a skill. It's hard. And having standards is important. We need to care about what we're doing and how we're approaching it. But at the same time, like that moment of forgiveness that we're so quick to grant to our teammates needs to needs to be very present after we fail because we know we're going to fail and you know again so my question to to club coaches are are you talking to your players about that are you talking to them about forgiveness and utilizing information and then being ready for the next moment or are we just lighting them up when a ground ball goes through their legs with runners on base like 
they of all people know they made a mistake. They're very aware. And so how do we get them closer to being prepared for the next moment? And so, I mean, that was such a big comment to me. It's like, well, why wouldn't you talk to your teammates that way? It's like you, you would be kicked off the team or beat up. Like those are your options. Mm-hmm. You would never talk to your teammates that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because you say like coaches, would you remind them for this thing? Well, parents are, I feel like they're also coaches, you know, in their child's life. And mm-hmm. some of these aspects that you're talking about can definitely be, you know, used in school or other extracurricular activities that they do or things around the house. So like if you if you were to talk to a parent about like making sure you're showing up for your kids so that they can succeed. Would you sh- would you say pretty much the same stuff or would you talk to parents a little bit differently cuz as a coach, we only get them for X amount of hours or minutes yeah. a week. What would you say to parents who are trying to like do this for them, but obviously they're with them more? It's a really hard question, I'm sure. I, I mean, it, it is because like it's, you know, parenting is, that's a whole nother level of connection and stress for your, for your kid who's trying to perform in a moment, right? And you know, yeah. even my friends who played at a high level, they now have 10, 11 year old kids. And, you know, one of them was like, well, I set my timer. So I know when the game's over, so I could stop being stressed out. And she doesn't <laughs> yell or scream during the game. It's, it's funny. The, the most craziest parents are usually the ones that like have never even sniffed at playing something sure. at a high level. Yeah. They don't, so they don't get it. They haven't been there. Yeah. They haven't been there. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know that it should be that different in terms of that, that piece, you know, I, we can mess up our, our, our athletes in, in two ways is one, they get in the car and we tell them like, it's okay, honey, it's not your fault. They need to feel better behind you. Like you were hitting good. Your team needs to learn how to hit. So then we create this, this victim, Mm -hmm. which is not helpful. Or you have the other end of the spectrum where, I mean, I literally was on the phone yesterday doing recon on a player for a college coach. And he said, you know, she's, She's a hothead. She'll come in the dugout after a failure. No, none of her teammates want to be anywhere near her. And she'll literally say out loud, like, oh man, my dad's gonna have something to say about that one. And like that's during the game. And like that is that is tough. That is tough when the game's gonna beat you up. And your coach might let you know that you weren't in the right spot that game mentally or physically as well. And then you're gonna get in the car and it's gonna happen all over again. You know, at what point do we do we balance that and be reprieved for that kid that just had a tough day on the field or in the classroom and just and just say, like, you know, I'm sorry you had a tough day. That was it. Instead of going into the rant about like how terrible it was and how embarrassed they were to watch their kid play bad that day. You know, where's that middle ground? Sue Inquist said it in a really cool way. She said, Parents, your job is to pretend like you're watching a movie when you watch your kid. Like, Ooh, I like that. Just just pretend like you're watching a movie. Like, obviously, like, get excited for them, whatever. But, like, yeah. you're not going to be in a movie and start screaming at the screen. <laughs> right? <laughs> the umpire. Yeah. But, like, See, she's so smart. I know. But, like, it's, it's more of that listening again. It's, like, listen mm-hmm. to understand. Like, mm-hmm. let your athlete figure out, like, what's going on. And, like, open up the floor afterwards. Be like, do you want to talk about it? And of course, like there are some things that do need to be addressed. Like, hey, what are we going to work on this week? <laughs> because you know, like you don't want your athletes to show up to lessons and not work on this stuff at home. But like, right. 
what I get from that is letting your athlete kind of dictate what work they want to put in and you being on the sidelines like, okay, I'm going to help you get there. Not like I'm going to yell at you more, even when you really stunk at that rise ball today. Yeah. Like I'm going to, I'm going to work on that with you. And yeah. we go to your hitting coach to learn how to work on it. And we're going to go home and we're going to do that. How much do you encourage parents to be at their athletes lessons? Yeah. I mean, I guess I've kind of, I've, I feel like most of them are there often, mm-hmm. which it wasn't like that. You know, even 10 years ago, I gave some lessons here and there longer than that. Um, and now it's like they're they're full on in. They're recording. They're 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 engaged. They're listening to what I say. And like in the one sense, it's like, man, let this be your kid. Let let it be just your kids. Mm-hmm. Let let this be their own thing. But on the flip side, if they're going to be working with them, which a lot of them are now, like they're they're in the garage, even if they don't know anything about softball, like you know, they're trying to learn, which I think is pretty cool. So like, there's that sense of like, oh, this is my kid's interests. Like, I want to know more about it. And so I've kind of, you know, it's it's normal for me to have them there. There is now moments where I will literally say to a parent, like, did you hear what I said? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Or like, no, I didn't. I was like, okay. And so I will find myself explaining it because I can tell that they are, they're working in the garage or the basement together. And so I got to do the best I can for that parent to understand it because they're going to be giving cues and, you know, the next night. Yep. I did the same thing. And sometimes I'm not going to lie. I shout out a parent who's like bickering in the background, like trying to get like help them. And I'm like, Hey, and and I'll try to do it in private, you know, like I don't want to embarrass the parent for their kid, but I think that's where it can get a little tricky for hitting coaches. It's like, yeah, like the ones that just kind of listen, absorb, watch you like crazy so that they can go home and do it. Like that's where I've seen the biggest growth in kids is their parents there to just keep repeating what I've used. Cause you know, coaching, you probably have different terminologies than I do. And like, it would get confusing if we use different ones, but like they want to adopt this. They want to help their athlete when they get home on this specific drill. Like let's get as close to perfect as we can on it let's work on these challenges at home. Like Mm -hmm. that, those are the kids that grow the most. And I have had to say things in the cage where a parent's like saying things in the background and I can tell like her mental game is now going all the way down the drain. And would you address that to the parent or the player? Like, hey, player, pretend like it's in one year, not the other. This is your journey. Let's go. Or do you do both? This is hard. I I, I always start with the kid because- Uh, I I want kids to advocate for themselves. Yeah, I really do. And sometimes, you know, they'll tell me, it's like, I feel so much stress right now. Like this is coming up, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, where's the stress coming from or pressure coming from? And, you know, this just happened. She's like, honestly, my dad. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I can tell he's all in. I get that a lot. Yeah. And it's because they care, obviously. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, we share that with them, right? It's like, I promise you it's well-intentioned. He's just so excited for how well you've been playing. And I always tell him, I was like, I want you to address it, but catch him off guard. Like maybe he's making a sandwich in the kitchen. You're not talking about softball and talk with him about like, what does it feel like when he's up against the fence and you're on deck and he's telling you stuff? Um, do they always do it? I don't know. I'll try to follow up. And and sometimes they're like, yeah, I talked to him. I was like, well, how'd it go? Oh, pretty good. But he brought it back to like, but well, you're doing so good. It's like, if we can get our kids to start advocating and having that conversation first, awesome. Um, there's been a few moments where I felt like, you know, it's hard with our job. It's like, well, don't tell me how to parent. It's like, that's not what I'm doing. We're all very interested 
in your kid's happiness and success with this game. That's why I'm, I'm trying to address it with you is that Mm -hmm. on game day, you're making games harder instead of easier. So don't be the 10th opponent against your kids because that's what happens when there's a bunch of people screaming at you. That's so true. That's so true. I love that we're getting into like the players and starting to own their journey. I think that was my ankle that just cracked, by the way. Did you hear that? Um, (laughs) Might have to cut that part out, but I did. (laughs) It makes it more fun. It was just like a huge pop. I was like, oh, great. I'm not even walking and my ankle's cracking. I'm 30 now. uh, Almost. Not quite. Oh, almost. (laughs) My bad. Just a few more months. Okay. I'm going to live out my 20s as long as I can. But so those athletes that have these huge goals for themselves and and mm-hmm. have these high standards for themselves, they want to play in college or they want to make their varsity high school team. How do they set themselves apart? How do they do that? And I feel like a lot of it has to do with their training. I do. I, I agree with you. I think so much of it has to do with like, how are you approaching things? Because they look at making a team or getting recruited like it's some, in someone else's hands. Mm-hmm. Like, well, they didn't pick to recruit me, so it must be their fault. I'm like, that's not it. The players who initiate their training, so it's not a parent dragging them in the garage. The players who said, like, wait, can can you can you show me that again? Those simple things where it's like, whoa, they're they're actually engaged. They're not dependent on, oh, I did my hour lesson, I'm gonna get better. Like I've been actually talking about what you just said so much more. And and most of the time it comes back to just being able to focus and be engaged in a moment. So I actually did use a movie analogy. I said, look guys, just because you showed up and you came to practice because your coach schedule, it doesn't mean you're going to get better in two hours. So imagine if you went to a movie, you put in earplugs and you put on a blindfold. Did you see that movie? Well, no, but you were there, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is the same thing. You can't just show up and go through the motions. And I do believe like so much of what we teach in a lesson or when I'm doing team training And again, just narrating it, like, I'm not going to change it in an hour. I'm not a wizard. We're not. It's what you do with what we talked about when nobody's looking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know kids have been hearing this over and over again. It's because it's true. It's because it's 100% true. Like, there's a kid that asked if she could practice with a 16U team I was working with because her 18U team doesn't practice. And she was even taking herself to 14U practices because their practices were more demanding than her 18U practice. I mean, that's amazing. And it doesn't happen enough where it's like, well, I got to stop waiting for the grownups to tell me what to do. What do I need to do? Find a way. To make, yeah, to make the JV, to make the varsity team, whatever it is. Mm, that's so well said. I like don't want to ask any more questions because I feel like that's just a mic drop it, statement. It's done. <laughs> but I mean, essentially, that's, that's the secret. It's outwork, of course, those around you, but like find ways to be challenged and get out of your comfort zone. And, you know, this is the part that we love is like, we want those kids to fail often. That girl Mm -hmm. who's practicing with these other teams, that means she's going to fail more. That means she's going to get better. She's around maybe better talent. I think Mm -hmm. that's a huge one, especially when the travel ball world is where it is. There's so many teams out there and they're so diluted You know, Mm -hmm. like you need to make sure you're on a team where you're not the best. I think that's, to me, that's a huge and important factor. And when you are the best, I mean, I was lucky enough. I was playing like little league at the same time as playing travel for a lot, for a minute. And on a little league team, I was the best, 
But I did get to learn leadership skills that I didn't get to work on in my travel Mm -hmm. team where I was, you know, middle of the pack. So I think obviously it's about making the most of the environment that you're in, but also making sure you're in those challenging environments where you're not the best and you can be exposed to more. How do you feel about that? Well, it, it, it took my mind to the, when you don't get what you want and you aren't the best, we see the team hopping happen. And yeah, and it's, you know, players that play together for a long time get a lot better and they perform together better because they understand how the other one moves and how they think and how to, how to talk to them during a failure. Like there's so many things that come out of, you know, staying in one place as long as you can. And you're, I mean, you're watching it at the club level now and you're seeing it happen at the college level or there's amazing athletes, but you notice when you see an amazing team mm-hmm. because they move together different. And to me, that's just that commitment piece. So, you know, if you're on a team and you're a third baseman, it's like, oh, the girl in front of me is like a lot better. I don't think I'm going to play there. It's like, well, are you going to play? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in the lineup, but I don't know. I think I should switch teams. It's like, why? Why would you just jump because you're not getting your position? Like there's just one person on your team that's better than you. Now imagine the whole country, because once that moment comes for recruiting, like I bet she's not the only third baseman that's better than you. Yeah. And so there's, there's those kind of, there are good kids. It's, these are not kids that are saying and doing these things that, that don't care that are troublemakers, but that there's a mentality out there. that's if you're not getting the playing time and the position time you want, let's move to another, let's move to another team. Let's go over to the, to the other side of the hill. And you know, it's tough. Like I, I do think it's, it's a little bit disconnected. It certainly is here in Colorado. And the fun part is like, I'm, I'm talking to coaches about him. Like, here's what's going on. Here's why I literally told a coach, I don't recruit Colorado kids. And he said, can I ask why? And she started a laundry list of it. Mm-hmm. And so like, what are we going to ignore that and be mad at? No, she was being honest and giving out the reasons. Is there no kid in this state that could play there and be successful? Of course not. But she was seeing a pattern here. And that pattern is probably in a lot of states where everybody has a team and everybody jumps around, but nobody really develops together. And so it's it's hard to see those really good athletes hit their peak because they don't. Yeah. And it's crazy because you think of those teams that are cohesive, and that doesn't mean they're always winning titles, but they just tend to naturally do that because they work so well together. That's yeah. where the college coaches are lined up in every single crevice to try to watch that game. Because they might be there for one player, but then they might find another player that's on this team that is just as competitive. And that's how this recruiting stuff works is obviously you have to be seen, but, you know, it's hard to be found if you're like the one sole competitive player on a team where like nobody else cares, right? Or nobody else has the goals that you have. Yeah, that was the biggest move for me was I played on a team for about five or six years and we were a travel team from Fort Wayne. We earned our way to get to Colorado for that big sparkler tournament. I think we got invited to other big showcases, but we worked well together. And then we got to a point where some of us wanted to play in college and some of us didn't. And it was just our time. And it was some of the best times was getting to know, and we had little to no turnover because of how well we played together and our parents got along and we loved each other. And it was like, you play different when you're mm-hmm. around a team like that. It's so much more fun. So much more fun. Yeah. Especially at a young age, that should be the goal. Like you're not trying, yeah. like it shouldn't be, we're not winning championships. I'm leaving. No, it's like, how do we build? How do we develop? How do we grow together? Yeah. You know, I had, a, I had a coach, a, a youth coach come up to me once. He's just like, 
it's really hard to get parents on board with the fact that like we're playing in tough tournaments where we're losing a lot and the parents are mad. And he's just like, well, they're not going to know what's out there if they're not exposed to it. So that's just the wild part of travel ball. It's going, we could probably go in a rabbit hole of this, but (laughs) all in all, if you're a kid who wants to be recruited, because I mean, you've been there, you've been recruited by Nebraska, you've played professionally, you've been a college coach recruiting. What are those special aspects that athletes have or, you know, shine where you're like, you can't keep your eyes off this kid? Yeah. What are those things that you find? There's a couple right now that I work with here and and when I started talking to college coaches about them, they it was the same few things about both of them. And they'll end up playing at different levels. But you noticed them. And it was really and truly like no matter what happened, they had trained themselves. And, and really, I don't think they were training themselves to put on a show for college coaches. They shoot out of the dugout and they're having so much fun taking ground balls before, you know, before the inning starts. They are gritty. And that is, that is a word that college coaches are hungry for. They are looking for gritty players. And I think gritty players get ugly hits. They make pit- pitchers throw a ton of pitches. They talk more and louder when bases are loaded and they're on defense. They don't quiet down. They try to match the situation versus shy away from it. And you see that mm-hmm. through body language, not performance. Like nothing I've said so far has been like, oh, and they're the ones that get the big hit. Like, yeah, we hope you get a few hits here and there. That'd be great. But consistently, college coaches are waiting, waiting for kids they're interested in to fail. Yeah. They're like, okay, how do they handle it when things don't go their way? Like, everybody knows how to behave when they hit a home run. Great. What do you do after you fail? And are you still that kid that shoots out of the dugout? Yep. Are you still that kid that is in the middle of the pack in the dugout when your whole team is hitting, not down at the end because you didn't like the last at bat that kid that takes a ball. Like there was literally a kid I recruited. I watched her take a ball off the chin and I couldn't wait to see what happened. She turned around. She took a second and she was pissed. She turned around. She goes, I'm good. I got you my bad. And it was like, lover. <laughs> there wasn't an excuse. There wasn't crying. And that still comes back to the grit, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, Oh, you know, took a bad hop or the sun was in my eyes. It was, I'm sorry. I didn't do my job for you. I'm here. I'm back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it is still it kind of, you got to be able to play the game. Like let's not let's not get crazy, but like you got to have the intangibles in line, and that's grit and commitment to your teammates, even when you're not playing the way you want to play. Mm-hmm. Man, I love this conversation so much. Oh, that's nice. I do too. So this is fun. Much. I know. Can we do this every day? I love you. How do the people who are listening, who love you now, like are like? I I need more of Nicole. Where can they find you? Where do you like to hang out? And you're in Colorado, obviously, but like if they don't live by you, where can they, where can they follow? So my website's my name. It's NicoleTrimboli.com. And that just talks a lot more about some of the services I offer to teams. And I think that's, what's tough is you and I both. So thank you for the nice compliments. It's always very awkward to feel because it's like, I immediately think like, Ashley, somebody did that for us, mm-hmm. right? Like somebody, somebody somewhere helped us get better at the game and mentored us. And that's a big part of what I do. Like it's not, it shouldn't just be about what happens in the cage. We're trying to grow athletes like this. Mm-hmm. We're not just trying to make a good swing. We're trying to make a great hitter and a great person and a great teammate. And I'm on, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook and I do put out 
different videos, um, whether it's, you know, about hitting or just, you know, food for thought for a parent and a coach, because we are losing a lot of kids. They're quitting the sport. We can't find officials. And a lot of it has to do with like the grown up behavior, to be honest. It's, it's not the kids that are the problem and the game is not the problem. You know, I, I've worked with teams all over the country via Zoom, whether it's on team culture, like I love talking strategy too, and just understanding the just the game, having higher game, game IQ. So I'm happy to work with any team that's interested in that. And I do recruiting workshops because I get to tell them the things they can't Google yeah. because I've recruited people. So I really yeah. like, I really like working with teams and coaches on that stuff. It's so special that people have this. I'm, I'm glad you're not coaching in college because you wouldn't be able to do all these things <laughs> if you were. It's a very yeah. restrictive thing to to coach in college. I've spent three years doing it. I struck out. But um, <laughs> that, that mean is, I struck out like four times. Like didn't you for coach for like eight? Uh, is 12 years? 12 years? Yeah. No, yeah. you didn't strike out. I, I think you just found where you can make more impact. That's what I was searching for. But those that are like, oh my gosh, like I've learned so much. Please do a team Zoom call with her. Like I want to do. If I had a team, I would be like, "Yes, you're on the weekly. I would pay for you every week." <laughs> but your Thanks, athletes, Ash. I know they're so lucky to have you too because you're teaching them more than just the physical stuff. Um, and that's why yeah. I needed to have you on the show today. Great. Thank All you. of those resources can be found in the show notes for those of you who are interested in learning more from Nicole. But can we do a little five to thrive rapid fire real quick? Are you ready for this? Look at you're getting set. You're like shimmy. The stretch out. first. I love it. Okay, I'm ready. I love it so much. Okay, most fulfilling part of coaching for you? Relationships. Seeing those kids grow up. Great answer. Favorite sports movie? For the love of the game. Mm, that's a good one. What phrases did you tell yourself in the box to help See pop it, you hit up? it. See yes. it, hit it. Good. Simple, simple. Who's been a huge mentor for you in your career path? Uh, Rhonda Rudolph. Yeah. Yeah. And I was tough when I was there. Like, let's not get cute at all that I was like this perfect <laughs> kid. I was really good at pushing her buttons and not breaking rules at the same time. And so I say three things to her still. And they have all told me to stop saying this because we still have a great relationship. Thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> Those are my three things I always still tell them. <laughs> That's so great. She's an incredible mentor to many. And before I ask the final question, I need to just thank you for coming on. This has been seriously a blast. I feel like we could have talked for four more hours easily. Yeah. It's, it's fun talking shop with people that are, I mean, we're in it, we're in the same boat now and like passion first, knowledge second, because I, I, I don't know that you can teach passion, mm -hmm. right? Like I can always learn more things, but I mean, we're, the game's been so good to us. And so we're always excited to share it with other people. So it's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Especially just for being such an incredible human too. Like I think just every time I get to like, oh I hear your name or see your face, I just get so giddy and happy because you're one of the good eggs. So, so proud of you <laughs> and all the work that you're thank, doing. You thank Rhonda for that too. She Thanks Rhonda. Me yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Final question that I have for you is okay. what's your favorite bat right now? Oh, my favorite bat. Well, if I could go back in time and find the three-year-old ghost that didn't break every five seconds. Yeah, that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one. And mostly because of the break. I, I, I do like the ghost. Um, I think it's got good pop. I always tell parents and players, buy last year's model. All they did was change the paint job. Sorry, Easton. And it's a hundred bucks less and it's the same bat. Yeah. 
Oh, that's good advice. Let's go. I'm putting yeah, that on Instagram. Go, go to Amazon and it still has the one year warranty. Yep. Good answer. Uh, this is just a side question. Are you going to be at NFCA this year in San Antonio? I think so. I mean, I, I want to go. Are you going? I, I think I'm going to go and okay. I hope so. So I can see your face. Okay. <laughs> if not, right, I'm just going to fly should... out and see you because I miss then you. We should go together. <laughs> okay. Deal. It's happening. All right. All right. Thanks so much for coming on, Nicole. Yeah. Thank you. 